Alperin Shingun. You got a chance to talk to him after the game. He played what Steven Silas called, I think he called it his best defensive game, uh, if, if you correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think that was what he said. Uh, best defensive game that he's played, which I think says a lot because that's the, I mean, that is the looming and lingering question with Alperin Shingun is can he step it up on the defensive end? And y'all had, I was reading y'all's interview or back and forth about that, and y'all actually got into it in depth on, you know, how he, how, what they've asked him to do and what he feels comfortable doing. What were some of your takeaways from Shingun playing his best defensive game, as Steven Silas called it, and, and also y'all's interaction after the game? You know, he's understood, and this goes back to the entire year. He, he knows that defensively that's always going to be the big thing for him, and that's going to be what, you know, I don't want to say make or break, but that's going to be what – you know, in essence, holds him back as if he can't get better on that end of the floor. And the big thing, you know, they they are they are asking him to play drop coverage, and it's not necessarily natural for him because it's not. You know, when you when you pl- when you have a, a center who plays drop coverage, it's usually a really good shot blocker. You know, it's Brooke Lopez is probably the best at it right now. He's a great shot blocker. Back in the Tom Thibodeau days in Chicago, it was Joakim Noah, a great shot blocker, and uh, Shingun isn't that. You know, he's, he's not that big. You know, he's only six foot 10, six foot 11, doesn't have like the huge wingspan or anything like that. But that's kind of is the best way I think that they feel that he can defend right now. And, you know, I, I've heard you, you see this stuff all the time. Well, they won't let him play another way. And basically, I think they understand that this is the best way for him right now. And so I asked him, would you be more comfortable in, in a scheme where you have to switch more. And he said, no, I really wouldn't because NBA guards are, are really fast. And, you know, maybe they could have him blitz pick and roll and, and, you know, trap a little bit more, but then you're asking him to cover a whole lot of ground. And then also you're putting a lot on the rest of the team. And so now you have all these young guys trying to figure things out on the fly. And so the way that they have them defending right now is probably the best way. I don't know if it's the best way moving forward, and I don't think that they necessarily want to play that much drop coverage moving forward. And you've seen them try to experiment with other things where, you know, they'll try and hide Chengun on a wing, you know, whether it was Kyle Anderson earlier in the year, and they've done this with a few other uh, teams also this season. Like to me, that's probably their best way moving forward with him on the floor is to try and hide him on someone. You know, you had, remember back in the Durant Westbrook days in Oklahoma city, it was Andre Robertson. I mean, that's the type that's kind of what you would like to be able to do is just kind of let him, you know, guard a weaker wing and maybe let him roam a little bit more. I think that's probably the preferable way to have him defend, but he understands too that he's going to work and we can talk a lot about his season and, you know, the way that it started was not good where, you know, he he had a really bad training camp and um, he got benched to start the year. I mean, it was Bruno Fernando starting at center those first two games. And a lot of it was because of Shingun, you know, Shingun wasn't good. And I don't think that he came into camp, in shape you know he was in he was in Eurobasket, so his you know his attention was kind of pulled elsewhere a little bit um but he didn't come into camp in shape i don't think he i don't think they like the right i don't think they like the mindset that he came into camp with but it, i think for him it probably turned out to be a bit of a blessing because um he's played really well and he's tried you know he's done a pretty good job staying as focused as he can and he understands i think now this is a big summer for him this is a big summer for this is a big you know this is a big summer because year three is really big for, for these guys, especially, you know, if they want to start talking about extensions and things like that. And, you know, he said, I'm going to come into camp ready. 
I'm going to come into camp, you know, in shape and I'm going to work on, you know, my, my defense and my footwork and that sort of stuff. And I think that's the sort of stuff that he really needs to be focused on because once he gets stronger, I do think that, you know, some of the liability stuff with him, with the way that he moves, I think that that gets tempered a little bit. So it's a big summer for him. It's a big stretch for him, but he's closing the season strong. And, you know, he, Last year he played and he played a lot, but he wasn't starting. He wasn't playing heavy minutes. Now you look this season, I think he's missed six, maybe seven games, but he's playing starters minutes. And, you know, he is getting better as the season progresses. And I think that's really encouraging that, you know, he can be a starter for the first time in the NBA, play in 70 something games and get better as the season goes on. Yeah, I, I feel like it's a real cool success story when you consider all of the things that you mentioned about how he started the season struggling and lo- basically losing the starting job that was his to lose. You know, they were going to give him that job if he just came in and was ready to play, and he wasn't. Um, and even when they lost Bruno Fernando for a little while, that that ended up, because you know, because of where they were at that point, that ended up mattering because he was their best, uh, you know, at that point, he was their best probably defender, uh, at that position and offered them um, a little bit more in the pick and roll uh, at the time. And, and you know, Alperin Shingun just had some things to figure out. We obviously understand him to be the more talented, high upside player, but he just wasn't there at that point. So I think that's one of the really cool success stories of the year is where Shingun started the season and where versus where he's ending it, where he's going toe to toe with his idol, Nikola Jokic. And, you know, <laughs> There's probably way too much conversation about the the comparison, but the comparison is there, and and he obviously looks up to him for a re- looks up to him for a reason, um, and you see the similarities, and you're like, okay, well, he went from what he was doing earlier in the year uh, to to what he's doing now. I am curious about this though. Before we move on, since we're talking about it, and, and you mentioned him being ready for next year, um, and, and we'll we'll get into plenty of this as the offseason comes along about you know, draft prospects and possibilities and what the Rockets might end up doing um, in the draft, especially once we figure out where exactly they're drafting. But we know what the conversation is out there. Victor Wembanyama, um, Scoot Henderson. Victor had the the viral play of the weekend or whenever exactly it was, a play that I don't feel like any of us have ever seen before. A dude does a step-back three-pointer and follows it up with a put-back dunk. Like, I, I've never even considered that as a possibility. And there he is doing it. And, and we've heard all the conversation. Everybody that's in a position to get Victor wants to get Victor because of the type of prospect that he is. I'm, I'm just curious to kind of spitball and throw this out there before we move on. How do you feel like, because obviously if, if if they were to get Victor and we're moving way ahead of ourselves here because they don't even have the pick yet and they might not get it. But if they did and they got Victor, how much does that change? To me, it changes everything like exponentially. How much does it change everybody else's role? Um, it, it specifically, I guess, we, I, I would point to Shingun and Jabari Smith Jr. Um, yeah. Because, 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 and, and I'm only asking because Victor is a 7 4 guard, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I mean, you, know? you say you say they might not get the pick. I mean, they probably won't get the pick. I mean, let's just let's just be honest. It, there's a 14 percent chance that they get the number one pick in the draft, which means there's an 86 percent chance that they don't get the pick. So yes. the odds of them getting the pick are are incredibly incredibly small. They're they're better. Thank than- you. Thank you for the math, though. Too, I think that's important to point out. Go go ahead and lay that out again because I think people need to need to understand 
this how this whole thing works. It is a gr- much greater. How many? 86? It's an, there's a 14% chance that they wind up with the number one pick in the draft. There is an 86% chance that they don't wind up with the number one pick in the draft. I mean, there's basically a better chance of if Zach Granke were still allowed to hit, there's a better chance that he would come up with a base hit against you name pitcher X than there is of the Rockets winding up with the number one pick in the draft. So, I mean, again, the, the, the chances that now they have – of, of the 30 teams in the NBA, or I guess there will be 14 teams in the lottery, they will have the best chance. They, they Detroit and San Antonio will have the best chance to get the number one pick in the draft. But again, each team only has a 14% chance. So the likelihood yeah. of this happening are very, very small. So how yeah. does this, how, how does it impact them moving forward? I, I really, it's not something that I really have given much thought because of just how, of, of how insignificant the chances are that they could wind up with that pick because again, the odds are they aren't going to get it and they've had the same odds the last two. Hey, maybe they're due, you know, maybe they're due. Maybe, you know, they didn't get it last year. They didn't get it the year before they had a 14% chance each time. So maybe this time this is their year. Um, But I I do think that you look at the guys that they have assembled, you know, I think Jabari Smith can be on the floor with basically anybody. I think when Bimiana could be on the floor with basically anyone Shingun becomes, you know, it's, it's interesting but if you have other really good defenders on the floor, especially guys who can defend the rim, then I do think that that makes it a little bit easier. And maybe it allows you to be a little bit more creative with what you do defensively. So how, how it fits, you know, that's one of those we'll have to wait and see. But really great plays goes back to a Daryl Morey thing. Really great players will always figure out how to play together. That's just yeah. how this works. It doesn't matter what position they play. It doesn't matter how big. It doesn't matter their skill set. If you're a great player, you're going to be able to figure out how to play with other great players. That's why they they rolled the dice with the James Harden, Chris Paul thing. That wasn't supposed to work when when uh, when we were initially talking about that. It worked out really well. Um, yep. So great players figure it out. That's just how it is. And it, it's going to take, it'll probably take some time just because of how young everyone actually is. You know, it's one thing with James Harden and Chris Paul, those guys were vets and they were, they had been in the league for a very long time. This will be very different where you have a bunch of 19 and 20 year olds trying to figure it out. But again, great players have a way of figuring things out. Yeah, man. I, I just want to go ahead and reiterate the math that you articulated a minute ago, that there is an 86% chance that they don't get yeah. the pick. And the, and the only reason why, I feel like the conversation is worthwhile is because we're sitting here doing a Rockets podcast covering the Rockets. And as you also pointed out, they are among the few teams that the few handful of teams that do have the best chance of getting it, even though all of their chances are still slim. So, yeah, and, and they have a, you know, they, they, you could have lost all 82 games this year and the odds don't change. And yes. you could have gone, Oh, and 82 and you still have a 50 50 chance of even landing in the top four. So that's what they're looking at. I, I think they are going to wind up uh, whenever the season ends and whenever the lottery is held, they will have a 52.1% chance of landing in the top four. That means you have a 47.9% chance of, of falling outside the top four. That's a coin toss. And, you know, I know they haven't gotten the number one pick the last two years, but they have stayed inside the top four which means they've won those two coin tosses. And one of those coin tosses in 2021, where had they lost, they would have fallen to 18. You know, that stuff matters too. Yeah, yeah. And and again, this is way ahead of time. We'll have plenty of time to get into this and see how things are actually going to play out. But it is something as you get to the end of the season that you start getting closer to, at least for me, I start getting closer to thinking about, okay, the different possibilities. And we can do this too on the podcast over time is like I just mentioned, Victor, 
we can start looking at prospects, you know, and, and start talking about different guys that are, that could be possibilities, uh, potential lottery picks, maybe, you know, go over our top lottery picks uh, or, or the top ones as we see them, you know, and, and do that. But it is an interesting thought, um, especially coming off that. And I think I also mentioned it, too, because we're coming off that just that crazy highlight, man, like that that moment, that play is something that I do not not often do you see stuff and you're like, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Um, what was that? What was that catch? That was total luck. I can't remember who it was now. Maybe it's for the angels. There's a guy who had a catch in the, in, in, in I think right field. That was a no look catch on me. I think it was opening day. And I've never seen that before, but that also, you know, wasn't a matter of skill. That was a matter of luck in his hand, just being in the right place at the right time. When you have moments like that, it makes you start thinking I'm like, okay, all right, what would that guy look like here? And what would that mean for everybody else? How would that change things for everybody else? And I love the point that you made because I agree with it. And I think we've seen it time after time that great players either want one or two things. They either figure out how to play with each other and how to make it work. And even in the cases in which they don't, I always still feel like it was worth a shot. You know, like I always feel like it's just worth trying it out anyway. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, but like, you know, you and I reacted to the Kyrie Irving trade to to the Mavericks and kind of acknowledged, hey, there's some redundancy in their games, Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving, and maybe they figure it out, maybe they don't. But, eh, that's worth a shot. You know, to have two players that are that good on the same team um, is is just worth seeing if they can figure it out. So, um, so I just think it's a fascinating hypothetical, and we'll talk more about it as time goes on.